at the school. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Anne McGuinness, and it's my great privilege to be the chaplain at All Saints. So on All Saints Day, we have this Giveathon assembly where we collect our fundraising up, we celebrate who we are as a school, but we always have a theme, and the theme this year was a whole new world, Disney. And so the saints that arrived at All Saints Day on Giveathon Day on Thursday last week were Saint Mickey Mouse, Saint Dopey, Sneezy, Grumpy. And there were even a couple of very unsaintly year 12 Sleeping Beauty princesses. But it's good to celebrate in that way and remember that we're all, in one or another way, saints in the making. So today we start a new series on the book of Ruth. Uh, Stuart has very cleverly given this book to two females, so my beautiful friend over there, Marianne, will be with you next week. And it's a short book, but it is a wonderful book that is filled of rich, rich teachings all the way through it. Uh, so it's probably just as well there are two of us who are doing it over two consecutive Sundays and probably could take a whole lot more. So today, Marianne, I'm hoping to give a little bit of grounding and then over to you after that. So where to start with this wonderful book of Ruth? And I'm going to start with a word that is not found anywhere in the Bible. Not a single place in the Bible is this book, is this word found. It is a word that we used in chapel, our beautiful middle school chaplain used it uh, on Friday. And I thought, oh, that fits in so well with what I'm doing today. So I do completely admit to stealing it from him. But it is a word um, that we, many of us know and have known for some time, pretty new word in the English dictionary. It's a word that doesn't, to my knowledge, have any roots in Aramaic or Latin or Greek. But it is this word, and I wonder how many of you know it. Fubbing. Fubbing. Do you know what that is? Our young people would be able to tell us. Fubbing? Anybody know? Snubbing with your phone. Absolutely. There you go. There's a good definition of it. The practice of ignoring, one, ignoring one's companion or companions in order to pay attention to one's phone or other mobile device. And I have to tell you that I am exceedingly guilty of that and need to publicly apologize to my husband for that. I think we all are guilty of fubbing somewhere, somehow, along the line. It's interesting, I preached this sermon earlier, and as I walked out between the services just to go and put my robes back in the car, I walked around the corner of the parking lot and nearly ran into a 7.30 person who was sitting on her phone, and she looked up and she said, yes, I'm fubbing, uh, <laughs> as she went past. But we are guilty of it, and it is that, that really antisocial art of not paying full attention, not being present to the moment. Now, you're probably wondering, what on earth has this got to do with the book of Ruth, who would not even have known about mobile devices, let alone fubbing? But hopefully it'll come and be made clearer to you a little later on. But fubbing happens so often, and we fub the people closest to us very often, our spouses. Children fub each other, and their parents, and their grandparents. We see people walking around looking down at their mobile devices and missing completely what is going on around them in the world. 
There's a lovely video that Brendan showed of a man sitting on his mobile device as the girl of his dreams walked right past him and then shows what might have been had he not been fubbing at the time. So it's a very, very powerful video. But fubbing often takes us out of being present to other people. So let's just park that for a little while. Let's also make it a metaphor for anything that distracts us from being in the moment. Busyness, our own egos, that sense of um, doing something else, that mindless watching of television perhaps, where we are not present to the person involved, to the person that we are with. And so on to Ruth in this wonderful book of Ruth, which is only four chapters long, it resides in the scriptures right between Judges and Samuel, which are two pretty awful books for those of you who have gone through. And I often think it's just put there to make us feel better for a little while before we move on to the next spate of killings and, and bad stuff that happens in the Old Testament. But it's there and it just gives us beautiful insight into a little family that lived probably before, well, in the time of Judges, so well before King David, although the book itself was probably only written after the time of David, so probably around about 1,000 BCE, if you're not a church person. Um, and it is a book that has been described as, as by one commentator as, as this little pleasant surprise right in the middle. And he says, one of the commentators, commentator says there are no battles or military conquests, there are no burning bushes or partings of the Red Sea. In fact, God never speaks directly anywhere in the book. There is just a poignant, powerful story about two women struggling to survive during a very difficult time. Emerging out of the story of two simple peasant women is the realization that God is at work here, quietly directing things behind the scenes to bring about deliverance from the mess Israel created in the book of Judges. When I read that, there was one little sentence that jarred, that just, I thought, yeah, no. And that was, in fact, God never speaks directly anywhere in the book. Because I think God speaks very directly in the book. It is the story of an ordinary family. It is the story of probably hundreds of families at that time. But it is a difficult book to understand unless we know something of the culture and the cultural norms that were around at the time. So I'm going to give us a very quick run through of that as we talk about Naomi and her mother-in-law Ruth. You'll note I have I've had no mother-in-law jokes today. Um, I think that's often the go-to place in this. So it's a story of these two people, Ruth, Naomi, and later a man called Boaz. To understand some of the customs of the day so that we can put the story into better perspective, famines in various parts of the world were very um, prevalent and people would move away from their hometowns very often, and often for a prolonged period of time before going back. With that came cultural integration. So people from one culture would meet up with another culture. There would often be intermarriage. And also the gods of one culture would integrate or come 
up against in, often, in, in many times the gods of another culture. And so the culture, the language, the way people lived began to intermingle. Women were very dependent on their husbands, very dependent on their husbands for their welfare. And so if a husband died, a woman found herself in quite a difficult position. So Leveret Law brought into play something that was called Redeemer Kinship. And that meant, ladies, that if your husband died, you would be offered to your husband's oldest brother, along with all his land and along with all his goods and chattels, as it were. That is if you had no children. Okay. If he, for whatever reason, decided, yeah, I really don't want her, then it would go through the brothers, and when there were no brothers left, to a remaining kinsman somewhere along the line who would be prepared to redeem this woman. And it's a really, really, it was really hard, and why Jesus spoke so often about widows and orphans in the scriptures. Women could find themselves in a very difficult place. It was quite a complex law. And it is one of the laws that came into play in the story of Ruth. There was also something called the custom of a sandal. And the custom of a sandal really, in this case, meant that if, you, if a woman was, was offered to a man for redemption and he chose not to redeem her, he could give one of his possessions over to somebody else and say, no, I don't want her, but you can have her. The next kinsman in line, for example. And so there was this thing of handing over a sandal. I'm running, the, running through this pretty quickly, and you can probably go and look at all these customs in greater depth. But you do need to have that understanding because otherwise the book of Ruth makes no sense at all. There's one other thing. The Jubilee year, everybody went back to their hometown. So no matter where you had migrated to, in the 50th year, everybody would go back to their hometown. It would be a year of, of regrouping, a kind of Sabbath year, if you liked, and everyone, everything would revert to what was before. So if you were living in the land of Moab, like Ruth and Naomi were, you'd go back to your hometown again. And so as Ruth and Naomi find themselves in this place, they had moved from where they lived in Bethlehem, Naomi with her husband Elimelech, and their two sons were living in Bethlehem. And because of the famine, they had moved across to Moab. Now, Moab is north across the Jordan River, probably, and into what is now Jordan, in the hilly areas of, of, of adjacent to the Red Sea, the Dead Sea. And they landed there and made a living there, and the two children grew up. Elimelech died. The two children, Marlon and Chilion, grew up, and they married Moabite women. So they married out of their culture. They married these Moabite women, and life was grand, until the two lads died too, which left these three women, obviously without children. We're not told if they have children, but obviously they were underage if they did. And Nowhere to go. Where would they find a redeeming kinsman to look after them? So Naomi hears that the famine is over, and so she takes these two, these two girls, Orpah and Ruth, who had married her boys, Orpah and Ruth, 
and they travel back to Bethlehem again. But on the way, Naomi, who's really quite frustrated with God and believes that God has treated her really, really harshly, nevertheless blesses the girls and says, you need to go back to your hometown. You need to go back to your family. Now, Ruth, the book of Ruth, was written by a man, and we know this because it is written in a very male style through very male eyes. Nothing is said of what Ruth's relationship might have been, for example, with her mother-in-law or with Orpah. No one knows what their backgrounds were with their families, whether they were difficult or not difficult, but it's not that important here. What we know is that Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I'm not going back. Orpah went back, but Ruth says no, and she has this beautiful piece which has become a prayer Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And so she goes with Naomi out of her homeland, away from her family, with this mother-in-law who has a very, very uncertain future, back to Bethlehem again. And of course, when she gets there, They meet up with a distant kinsman called Boaz. Now, Ruth clearly had taken on the gods of her husband, the one God. She would have known the Shema, the Shema prayer, which says, There is one God. Hear, O Israel. Hear, the Lord your God is one. And she would have taken on this one God, and she says to Naomi, That is what I'm going to do. And she gets to Bethlehem, and then goes to work on in the barley fields of Boaz, this distant kinsman. And she gleans the wheat. And there was a right for people to be able to go behind the, the, the laborers and glean the, the barley, not the, the wheat, sorry, the barley, to take the grains of barley after they had harvested what they needed to. And Boaz, it seems falls in love with Ruth. He sees what she's done. He sees how good she's been to her mother-in-law. And he says, may God bless you for what you have done. So there is, right throughout the story, a waft and a weave of God working through the people, through Naomi in her own pain, wanting to bless her daughters-in-law, through Boaz, seeing this, this Ruth, this widow, and wanting to bless her wanting to do the right thing by her. And Ruth herself, finding herself in a position where she wants to do the best for her mother-in-law. And so she gleans the field, comes to notice of uh, Boaz. And then there was one other culture that I'm just going to raise now, and that was the culture where if a woman was in a position like Ruth was, and there was a redeemer kinsman, she could offer herself... In other words, propose marriage to him. And it was called, she, it, 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 I think I had it up there in the slide. It was about uncovering the feet of the man. So the woman would go into where he was sleeping and uncover his feet. It's unclear and there is a lot of debate as to how far those feet were uncovered. And she would lie at the feet of the man and offer herself to him so that he could then accept her 
and look after her as his wife. It was about the only way a woman could seek the company of the companionship of the marriage of a man. So Naomi tells Ruth to do this, and she goes in, and the, in, in later on in the, in the book of Ruth, it tells us that Boaz woke up and saw her lying there and then said, wait a minute, I am not the next redeemer kinsman in line. There's another person who's before me, maybe a cousin. We don't know who. And so he says, whoa, stop. I can't do this because there's some, some other chap in line. So she goes, Boaz goes to this chap and says, look, you know, this is the situation. If you don't want her, I'll have her. And so the man takes his sandal and gives it to Boaz. And Boaz takes Ruth on to be his wife. So it has this happy ending, if you like. And of course, they go on and have a child called Obed. And as we are told, um, Obed became the father of David right the way through. And Ruth, this foreigner from Moab, becomes an ancestor of Jesus. And there's this incredible story within there. I haven't even begun to unpack the depth of that. I've really just given you an overview of what it's all about so that Mary Ann can do that work next week. <laughs> but what I wanted to share with you mostly today is that God was not just working in the background. Had it not been for the action of Ruth, for her faith and her belief, for the sense that she, would, she understood and believed this God and listened with a small, to the small vo uh, voice of God in her heart. The same with Boaz. The same with, Ruth, with Naomi. And as you go through the book, you'll see all the way through there these little phrases that show us. Boaz goes to the workers and says, The Lord be with you. And they say, May you be blessed. God was in every moment of every day. There was no fubbing. No fubbing going on. And it made me wonder about how we might fub God in our lives. Are there times when we become so distracted that we are not listening to that very real voice of God that is there? giving us direction, calling us back when we're angry, giving us a word of wisdom or advice when we most need it. Here at Rabina, we've been told that we need to come closer. Closer is the theme. We're coming closer to one another closer to God. But in our daily lives, when we leave here, we need to also know that that is important. The Shema was the prayer that was used. And it is a, a prayer that teaches us that God is one with us. God is, accept, is available to us. That there is a oneness. Jesus, I love that prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer from John where he says, may we be one and you and I be one as God is one and we are all one. That one comes through all the way through. But we are one with God and we have the capacity to co-create and collaborate with God the way in which Ruth 
and Naomi and Boaz did. And we can do that. So how do we become closer to God? How does that happen? Or are we too busy living distracted lives, being torn away? There's always something else to do, something else to think. My emotions are distracting me. How can we become more present? I was sitting at All Saints the other day at a, at a beautiful concert. The kids had worked so hard. Some of those kids, it was the culmination of 12 years' work on their instrument. And there was a lady sitting in front of me, I kid you not, in the theater. And she kept putting on her phone, aside from the fact that she blinded me. I could see her Facebook. I could see everything she was doing. And she sat on her Facebook all the way through. And I thought, how dishonoring of those children on the stage. How dishonoring in a meeting when we're on our phone instead of listening to what's going on. We miss so much. We miss so much. How dishonoring when our husband is sitting next to us at home and we are not talking. And it's about being present in the moment and doing what we need to do to really co-create with God, to really collaborate with God so that we can spread the love, spread the joy. And then finally, it's not just about being there. It's about taking notice and paying attention so that we can be extraordinary in all that we do. So may you not become fubbers of others or God. May you find the solace and the consolation and the creativity of what it means to have God in our lives. I speak to myself just as much as I speak to you every day in every moment because God longs for us to work with God in everything we do. Amen.